If you would please take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 9. As we continue the Gospel of John this morning, we'll be in John chapter 9. We'll be taking a larger chunk of text than we normally have been here in the Gospel of John. We'll be uh, looking at the entire chapter this morning. So we'll begin reading John chapter 9 verse 1. We'll read through the entire chapter. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, As he passed by... He saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world... I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? He answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind Now it was the Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied the clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs. And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him, since he opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son? who you say was born blind, then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, or who who opened his eyes we do not know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, He was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, 
I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? They reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? So they put him out. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to him, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, We see, your sin remains. Now this chapter that we have just read is a a straightforward account. It shows the the healing of this man who was born blind. And it also shows the continuing deterioration in the relationship that Jesus uh, had with the, the Jewish religious leaders. And we could also say that this chapter shows us an emblem of the great work of Jesus in restoring spiritual sight to those who are spiritually blind. And indeed, Jesus himself points us in this direction at the end of the chapter there in verse 39. And so as we consider this chapter this morning, we'll do so under two main headings. First of all, mistakes concerning sin and punishment. Secondly, blindness and sight. So first of all, mistakes concerning sin and punishment. And secondly, blindness and sight. So first of all, mistakes concerning sin and punishment. This chapter opens with those words, as he passed by. And the chronological connection between what occurs here and what had earlier occurred in chapter 8 is not entirely clear, though I think there is good reason to suspect that this event happened in reasonable proximity with what had been happening there in chapter 8 at the Feast of Booths. And I think this supposition is strengthened by the words of Jesus in verse 5, where he uh, says, While I am in the world, I am the light of the world, which harkens back to what Jesus said in John eight twelve, I am the light of the world. So it seems to be reasonable proximity, but it's not entirely clear from the text. And so, at any rate, Jesus is passing by. He sees this man who is blind from his birth, and the sight of this man evokes a question from his disciples, which is recorded there in verse 2. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Now, by merely asking the question in the way that they did, the disciples here were making a broad assumption, namely, that there is a connection between sin and suffering, between sin and punishment. And they're also making a specific assumption, That in this case, 
This particular man is suffering from a specific thing, namely blindness, and that he was suffering that because of some particular sin, either a sin that he had committed or a sin that his parents before him had committed. So you've got the broad assumption that there is a connection between sin and suffering. You have the particular assumption, the assumption that there's a particular sin here resulting in a particular punishment. Now what should we, what should we think about these assumptions? In regard to the first, the broad assumption... The disciples are absolutely correct that there is a connection between sin and suffering. Sin does bring suffering. Let there be no doubt at all about that. Death was the punishment that God announced in the garden to Adam. If Adam should transgress the command and eat of the forbidden fruit. Death came because of sin. And so Paul says in Romans 5.12, Therefore just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin... So death spread to all men because all sinned. Likewise, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Not only did death enter the world because of sin, likewise, other sufferings which we endure came into the world because of sin. Sin brought the curse into the world. Just think Genesis 3, right? The Lord told Eve that he would multiply her pain in childbirth, that in pain she would bring forth children. Genesis 3.16, the Lord told Adam, that the ground would bring forth thorns and thistles and that he would eat his bread by the sweat of his face. Not pleasant. Suffering, right? Sin brings suffering. The biblical narrative bears this out. Just think of a few examples. Numbers chapter 12 is a case in point. In that chapter, you may recall that Miriam and Aaron had spoken against Moses because he had married a Cushite woman and the result was that Miriam was afflicted with leprosy. There's a sin that takes place. There's a direct punishment that takes place. Read the curses, the consequences for disobedience in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Sin brings suffering. It's very clear. Or what about the situation in the church at Corinth in regard to the Lord's Supper? For their abuse of the sacrament, Paul says, For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Paul says that there's a connection between sin and suffering. There's a connection between sin and weakness, and there's a connection between sin and death. There really is. But with that said, we need to note that this exchange between Jesus and the disciples is helpful to make the point that the link is not always a direct link. Right? The, the disciples' broad assumption is correct. The particular assumption is not correct. Right? It, and so Jesus points out there, he says, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents. There's no particular sin here. Jesus is not denying that they are sinners, but there's no particular sin that brought on the blindness. It was neither this man that sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Sometimes there is suffering and no particular sin that brought on the suffering. Sometimes there is a sin and as of yet, no specific suffering on account of that sin. Jesus made the same point in Luke 13 when his attention was drawn to those Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, those Galileans didn't die in that terrible way at the hands of Pilate because they were worse than anybody else. Jesus just takes the opportunity to say that unless you repent, you too will perish. And what Jesus says here 
making the, making the point that there's not always a direct link between a particular sin and a particular punishment or suffering is borne out in the Old Testament as well, especially books like Job and Ecclesiastes. The link between suffering and a specific sin is not always direct. Sometimes it may be a direct link. Here in John 9, it was certainly not a direct link. But rather in this case, this man had been born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so let this be a comfort to you in your suffering, when you suffer. On the one hand, it's always wise to examine your own heart and examine your own life when you find yourself in suffering and see if there may be in your case a direct connection between your suffering and sin. Though this need not necessarily be the case, it could be the case. We've seen biblically that it can be the case. And it's certainly wise to take up the words of David from Psalm 139, 23 and 24, and use them in prayer, where David said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there is any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. Sometimes our ways are not even entirely clear to us, and we need to, we need to ask the Lord's divine help to shine the light so that we can see our own hearts, so that we can be led in the right way so that we can repent, should there be any sin. But on the other hand, your suffering may be completely separate from any sin that you've committed, as was the case here in John 9. And if that is the case, then it is certainly possible that the reason why you are suffering is so that the works of God might be displayed in your life. How so? Well, it might be that you are suffering now to give you a greater longing for your eternal home, in the presence of Christ. It might be that you're suffering now to give you more of a pilgrim spirit, to recognize that this world really is a valley full of tears, to give you a greater zeal to arrive at long last at that day when God wipes away every tear from the eyes of his people and there will no longer be mourning or crying or pain because the first order of things has passed away. It may be that the suffering that has come upon you Come upon you so that the works of God might be displayed in your life in the Romans 5 sense. Paul says in Romans 5, not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Suffering or tribulation brings about perseverance. This brings about proven character. This brings about Hope, which is to say a confident expectation that God will fulfill his promises. This might be the work that God is seeking to accomplish in your life through suffering. It may be that the suffering that has come to you has come for the purpose of God working the fruit of the Spirit in your life in a greater and deeper way to bring you greater love, greater joy, greater peace, greater patience, greater kindness, greater goodness, greater faithfulness, greater gentleness, and greater self-control. It may be that the suffering that has visited you has come to you so that you will be able to speak as Paul did in 2 Corinthians 1.4 when he said that God comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted of God. Your suffering may have come upon you So that you can experience God's comfort yourself and then extend God's comfort to others who are suffering. So that you can become an agent of grace. 
there are any number of possibilities. These are just some possible examples. This man here was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And as we'll see, this was a work of God which brought this blind man not only his physical sight, but it also brought him spiritual sight as well. And in this way that the healing here is an emblem of Christ's greatest work, his coming into the world so that those who do not see may see, as he himself says in verse 39. And that brings us then to our second point, which is, which is blindness and sight. So Jesus says in regard to this man and the situation there, verses 4 and 5, he says, We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And so Jesus knows that his time on earth is short, that his time on earth is coming to an end, and that while he was here on earth, he needed to be about the Father's business. The night is coming, he says, when no man can work. And Jesus is indeed the light of the world, and he was going to let that light shine in darkness, in the physical darkness of this man's blindness, and in the spiritual darkness of this man's spiritual blindness. Indeed, the German reformer Martin Bucer went so far as to say that this chapter is a sermon in act and deeds on the words, I am the light of the world. This is all about Jesus being the light of the world and letting that light shine. And when light shines, what does it do? It can both enable sight, and under certain circumstances, it can prevent sight as well. It enables sight by piercing the darkness, by making visible those things which are formerly invisible because they had been cloaked in darkness. But light can also prevent sight, can't it? How many of you have either had to drive into the rising sun in the morning or the setting sun at night? At just the wrong time, it can be pretty hard to see. At just the right moment, or maybe we should say the wrong moment, the road looks like it's on fire. And it takes about all your concentration just to, just to stay in your lane. If you've experienced anything close to that, you know what I'm talking about. The light can also blind. And indeed, Jesus points this out in verse 39, that he came into the world... So that those who do not see may see, but he also came into the world so that those who see may become blind. And so what's this all about? The blind gaining their sight and those who see becoming blind. Well, let's, let's look at the text. After speaking to his disciples about this man that was born blind, Jesus, of course, spits on the ground and using the spittle in the dirt, makes some clay, puts it on the man's eyes, tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. The man did it. Came back seeing, according to verse 7. Then in verses 8 through 12, there's this discussion between this man and his neighbors. The neighbors and those who had seen him before are having a bit of a debate whether this is actually the man who was born blind. Some say yes. Some were saying that it was not him, but it kind of does look like him. And the man himself says, yeah, it was me. I am the one. How were his eyes open, they ask? Well, it was Jesus And then notice what happens next. Verse 13, they take him before the Pharisees. And John gives us then the detail that it was a Sabbath on which this man was healed. And the Pharisees then, of course, began interrogating this man in regard to the healing. And this man explains what happens. And notice from from verse 16 that the investigating party of the Pharisees were divided in the verdict that they should reach about Jesus. Some said, this man is not from God. Because he does not keep the Sabbath. Healing had happened on a Sabbath. If Jesus was keeping the Sabbath, he wouldn't have done this. So therefore they say Jesus must not be from God. 
Others said, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? Their logic is essentially that of of Nicodemus. Back in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, he said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher because no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so there's some of these Pharisees who say, who see what's happened, and they say, well, this could not have happened if this man were not from God. And so there's this division between them. And so they ask this man what he had to say about the one who healed him, and his take is that Jesus is a prophet. That's, uh, that's what he says there in verse 17. And that's not a bad start, all things considered. But then in verse 18, we find that there's some of the Jews who are beginning to question the narrative that they're being fed, right? They doubt whether this man was actually born blind. They're suspecting that maybe there was a fraud of some sort, that this man had been pretending to be blind and then had feigned his healing, maybe to try to give some some credibility or some weight to to Jesus and make it look like Jesus really did have the power to heal people. So they, they start digging, start doing some detective work. They call in the parents and ask the parents of this man, And the answer that the parents give there in verses 20 and 21 and John's comments about their answer, verses 22 and 23, demonstrate that these parents can smell the danger of getting too closely involved in this. They don't want to comment on the healing. Yes, this is their son. Yes, he was born blind. Beyond that, they say, don't ask us. Ask him. He's a grown man. He can answer for himself. And the reason they spoke like this because they feared the Jews. There had already been a decision put in place that anyone who believed in Jesus would be put out from the synagogue. In our terms, this is excommunication. No wonder the parents are so fearful and wanted to pass the buck back to their son. And so they pass the buck back to him. Pharisees call him back in and then put him seemingly under oath with those words uh, there in verse 24, give glory to God. And this was the, the sense of the words that Joshua used when he put Achan under oath in Joshua 7.19. You remember that Achan had uh, stolen some of the loot from, uh, from Jericho and had hid it in his tent. And then Achan was, was taken by Lot and Joshua confronts him, puts him under oath. Joshua said to him, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And so this was, this was kind of a, a charge, basically putting him under oath now. Tell me the truth. And similarly, the Pharisees say to this man here, give glory to God. In other words, come clean, tell us the truth, don't hide anything. We know that Jesus is a sinner. He healed or perhaps feigned a healing on the Sabbath. This is a sinful thing to do. Surely God would not allow a man like that to truly heal someone. And so what they're wanting him to confess probably is that Jesus is a sinner. And they may have been pressing him also to tell him what, what really happened here. Were you faking blindness or what? What's going on here? Give glory to God. And this man is relatively ignorant about his healer, right? He knows that it was Jesus. He thinks that Jesus is a prophet. But when he's confronted by the Pharisees in this way, he simply says, verse 25, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know is that though I was blind, now I see. And this, this protagonist here, this, uh, this man who was born blind, is in some respects a, a very simple and straightforward man, it seems. He's the kind of man who speaks things as they are. If you look over his statements recorded in verse 11, verse 15, verse 25, this guy is a straight shooter. He's, he's simple, he's to the point, but at the same time, he does have a remarkable sense of humor, 
right? When they, they try to interrogate him, in verse 26, he replies in verse 27 by saying, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become this man's disciples too, do you? Now, surely he knew up front that they did not want to become the disciples of Jesus. That much was clear. He may well have already known what his parents already knew. Namely, that if anyone confessed that Jesus was the Christ, he'd be put out of the synagogue. But it's almost as if he can't help himself. They keep on asking him questions, and they try to get him cornered, try to get the goods on Jesus so that they can discredit Jesus and do away with Jesus. And so this man says, I told you once, why are you wanting to hear it again? Are you guys wanting to become his disciples? And because of that, then, the suspicion of the Pharisees turns to rage. And they let him have it, verses 28 and 29. They accuse him of being a disciple of Jesus while they maintain that they are disciples of Moses. And they don't even know where Jesus comes from. Now, it's a bit difficult to decide whether the Pharisees are speaking of Jesus' geographical origins when they say that we don't know where he's come from, or if they're talking of Jesus' commission, whether, in fact, he was sent from God or not. I lean toward thinking that they were speaking about his commission when they said, but as for this man, we do not know where he has come from. They seem to be acknowledging that they were stymied and baffled by Jesus and that they could not come to a collective consensus as to whether Jesus was from God, sent by God, or not. Some were on different sides of the fence of that question, as seen up in verse 16. And this man who was born blind shines through yet again with his common sense and wit. And so he says there in uh, verse, verse 30, he says, well, here's an amazing thing. You do not know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it's never been heard that a person opens the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. In essence, this guy is saying, really? You guys can't tell whether this man is from God or not? He opened my eyes. I was born blind. Nothing like this has ever been seen before in the history of the world. Surely this man has to be from God. He wouldn't have been able to do this were he not. But for all his common sense and for all his wit, this man was put out of the synagogue. They excommunicated him for his true reasoning and his common sense concerning Jesus. And when Jesus hears about it, he goes to find him. And this man, since his healing had been open to the light, right? He says, he says good things about Jesus. He knows that Jesus healed him. He thinks that Jesus is a prophet. But as of yet, he still only has vague and indistinct notions of who Jesus is. He was willing to, to stand up for Jesus. He was willing even to get himself thrown out of the synagogue. But one could say all of the things that this man said about Jesus and yet still not have arrived at true and saving faith in Christ. This man knew some things and believed some things, but he still needed to know more. He still needed to believe more. And so Jesus goes to him. Just as Jesus took the initiative to bring physical sight to this man, he also takes the initiative to bring spiritual sight to this man whom he had healed. And so he brings clarity to him. He finds him and says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And this man is ready to trust in the Son of Man. And so he asks who the Son of Man is so that he may believe. Jesus said, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And then what happens? This man believes and worships Jesus. In other words, now he could really see. His physical eyesight had already been restored. 
But now he could truly see Jesus for who he was. Jesus is not merely a prophet, not merely a man who was sent from God to do miracles. Jesus was himself the divine son of man, the one whom Daniel had prophesied in Daniel chapter 7, as we uh, read together earlier uh, from Daniel 7 in our Old Testament reading. The son of man was the, the one to whom was given glory and dominion and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Jesus is this divine Son of Man who actually reveals the Father because he's the only begotten Son of the Father, that he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, as we find in Hebrews 1.3. And this man believed that Jesus was the Son of Man, and he worshipped him. And that's the right response that ought to be given when we receive the sight to recognize that Jesus is the Son of Man. We have to worship Him. And notice there how Jesus summed up the entire history of what we've read in this chapter as it relates to His divine mission in verse 39. It kind of sums everything up. and says, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. It says, for judgment, I came into this world. Now, at first blush, this might appear to be in contradiction with something else that we've seen in the Gospel of John. John three seventeen, where we read that God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. But what John is getting at there in John three seventeen is that the purpose of Jesus' first advent, the purpose was to bring salvation by means of revealing the Father, by means of Christ going to the cross to die for our sins and to rise again for our justification. The purpose of Christ's coming was for salvation, not to, to judge. But nevertheless, in bringing salvation, in giving spiritual sight to the spiritually blind, there would inevitably be a division between those who received the truth and those who did not receive the truth. And those who did not receive the truth would be judged. This division implies a judgment, even though that was not the purpose of Christ's first advent. The second advent will be the time at which Christ passes judgment. But nevertheless, we do read in John three eighteen and 19, that he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Jesus had said up in verse 5, While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And what does the light do? It divides. Some come running to the light. Some go running away from the light. Because they love darkness and they want to try to hide themselves in darkness. So again, Jesus says, For judgment I came into the world so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Jesus gave physical and spiritual sight to this man who had been born blind. But notice, notice the last two verses of the chapter, verses 40 and 41. There were some Pharisees who were with him. And they asked a question, we're not blind too, are we? And Jesus answered that if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. I think one commentator helpfully paraphrased verse, 31, verse 41 by saying, Well, would it be for you if you were really blind and ignorant? If you were really ignorant, you would be far less blameworthy than you are now. If you were really blind, 
you would not be guilty of the sin of willful unbelief as you are now. But unhappily, you say that you know the truth and see the light and are not ignorant even while you are rejecting me. This self-satisfied state of mind is the very thing which is ruining you. It makes your sin abide heavily upon you. So in other words, the words of Jesus there in verse 41 is not an absolute statement, but rather a relative statement. It's not that ignorance excuses all sin. Ignorance does not excuse all sin. But it is to say that knowledge compounds guilt. Even as Jesus taught us in Luke 12, 47 to 48, where he said the slave that knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. Both the knowledgeable servant and the ignorant servant get a lashing. But the one who had knowledge is more accountable for his knowledge and therefore gets more than the one who is ignorant. And these Pharisees here thought that they had knowledge, thought that they had true faith, thought that they had spiritual sight. But they really didn't. And it was their arrogance and their self-confidence that compounded the problem that led to their condemnation. And indeed, I think the general idea of these final verses of John chapter 9 is not too far different from what we find in Mark 2.17, where Jesus said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus didn't come to heal those who think that they are already spiritually healthy. He did not come to give sight to those who claim that they can see. He did not come to call those who claim that they are righteous on their own. Rather, Jesus came for those who are blind and who know that they're blind and who want to see. Jesus came for those who are spiritually sick and want to get better. Jesus came for those who know that they are sinners and know that they cannot save themselves and want a Savior. Now notice in all of this what a terribly wicked thing it is than to harbor spiritual pride and self-righteousness. These are the very things that shut men and women out of the kingdom of God and involve them in an aggravated condemnation. This is what it is to be blind and yet think that you can see. These are the kind of people who say, I'm fine. I'm a good person. I can stand before God based on who I am. I know everything that I need to know. I don't need a savior. I don't need an intercessor. I don't need a redeemer. I can handle it. I can stand before God. Now that's one form of self-righteousness and spiritual pride. That's perhaps the most blatant form. Now there may be some people who harbor that kind of pride here this morning. And if that's you, be warned. You may claim that you can see, but you're actually blind. And if you maintain that posture and continue in your blindness... You'll be judged in the end. This morning you need to humble yourself before the Lord and begin to observe just how blind you have been. Some of you this morning may be in that position. But I would suspect that most of us here might struggle with blindness in other ways than that. Most of us here would acknowledge that we need a Redeemer. Most of us here this morning would acknowledge that apart from the grace of God to us in Jesus Christ, we are sick and blind and dead in sins. And that now in Jesus and because of him and the salvation that is given to us, we can see just how lost we were and how amazing God's grace toward us in Christ has been. But even still, given that starting place, that true and orthodox confession we can still slip into pride and blindness of 
a sword. This was the error, in a way, into which the Galatians fell, right? They began running well. They had received the gospel of Christ as a gospel entirely of grace, but they slipped from that, and they became proud, and they added their own works to the free grace of the gospel, thinking that they could be perfected by the works of the flesh. This is blindness. They may have thought that they were seeing, but rather they had become blind. They had become proud or trusting of something in themselves rather than in Christ alone. What about the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3? That church had become lukewarm, neither hot or cold. And therefore Jesus said to her, Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourselves, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. The church of Laodicea was a church that had become complacent, prideful, self-sufficient, and along with that, they were unfit for doing anything good. Jesus said to them that he knew their deeds, and it wasn't good. Their deeds were not good. And what they needed was to come back to Jesus. They needed to submit to his discipline. They needed to be earnest and repent. They needed to acknowledge just how truly needy they were. Return to Christ to have all of their needs fully met. The point is that we can become proud. All of us can become proud in various sorts of ways. We can all become blind. We can seemingly begin by humbly clinging to Christ and then morph over time into blindness and self-sufficiency because we become proud of something. We can become proud of knowledge, proud of correct doctrine, proud of correct practice, proud of piety, proud of good works, proud of our parenting, whatever. None of those things are bad, right? Piety is a good thing. Godliness Good thing. Correct doctrine. Knowledge. These are, these are wonderful things. We want them. We want more of them. But at the end of the day, we must recognize that whatever we have learned or believed or done that was right and good in God's sight is the grace of God to us. It's not because we're so good. We're not good. To think otherwise is to be blind. And so brothers and sisters, let us not do this. Let us all remember that everything that we have that is good It's a gift of God. James says, let no one deceive you. Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. I have absolutely nothing to boast of. So Paul says, 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31, But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. May that be us. Let him who boasts, and we should boast, not in us, but in the Lord. And so in light of that, let us who know the Lord Jesus Christ join this man here that we've seen in John 9. Join him by saying, one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And let us join him in saying, Lord, I believe. And let us join him in worshiping Jesus the divine Son of Man, to whom was given glory and dominion and a kingdom that all peoples might serve him. May we be among those people who serve him. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you and we are so thankful for the restoration of sight that is to be found in Jesus Christ. We are thankful 
Lord, that you have opened our eyes to believe the gospel, to receive Jesus as the Son of Man, to believe on him and worship him. We pray, Father, that you would keep us from blindness. Let us not think that we see on our own. Rather, let us always and continually humble ourselves before you and recognize that it is you alone who can make us to see, that it is you alone who can strengthen us and establish us. O oh Lord, let us never become blind. Let us cling to your truth. Let us cling to Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.